Welcome to the Singapore Management University podcast series, which features the latest insights and perspectives from our faculty. The Singapore Management University established the Business Families Institute, or BFI, at SMU in 2012 in response to the growing needs of business families in Asia. Under the leadership of its academic director, Professor Annie Ko, the institute collaborates with various partners, academic or otherwise, to be a knowledge leader in Asian business family-related education, engagement and research. The vision of the Institute is to facilitate business families in Asia to develop and to harness and leverage their family and financial capital across generations. In this podcast, Professor Annie Ko, who is also SMU's Vice President for Business Development and Professor of Finance at SMU's Lee Kong Chien School of Business, shares her insights into Asian business families' succession and governance, highlighting two recent surveys published by BFI in partnership with Deloitte Southeast Asia. Professor Ko, successful business families are able to transcend generations. I understand that SMU's Business Families Institute has studied the key developmental stages of business families in Asia. Could you share more with us? Actually, when BFI was first set up, uh, we knew right from the start that we need to collect data and do research. And I think we are really grateful to Deloitte for funding our first research. And that survey was conducted with 83 family firms participating, and they are largely from Southeast Asia. And interestingly, most of them actually took part because they are facing the challenge of looking at succession. So that whole survey was essentially addressing what's needed to make sure that the family transcends and goes beyond the third generation. And we discovered something ourselves too. We discovered that like all succession, it takes time and it goes through a developmental stage. So many of the families actually said they had no problem with the initiation stage because many of their next gen are quite happy to do their summer jobs, come to the family business for internships and they hear the conversation, they are part of the dinner table and they hear the challenges of building the family business. So many of the young next gen are quite comfortable with being initiated into the family business. The challenge comes at the second stage and at the second stage is largely looking at development and selection and many of the families reported to us in the survey that this stage takes close to 10 to 15 years and it's amazing because that means the commitment to join the family business must be there to start for us to work on them for the next 10 to 15 years. So you need development because you need to have acceptance from both family and non-family members. And if you have more than one possible successor, then your question becomes who amongst the successors to be will be selected. So you need that 10 to 15 years for people to assess who has both the passion, commitment and competence. So we actually think that if you don't start early, you will never have a family successor. And that final stage is transition. I think part of the baton needs to be passed on. So the early generation must also know when to give up their say. We have one Miyama family currently whose three girls have all been inducted into the business and the first two daughters have already been told they are going to be their successor. And the chairman 
of the board, who is their father currently, will be named the Emeritus Chairman because one of the daughters is going to be named the Chairman of the Holding Group and the second daughter will be named CEO of two of the businesses in the Holding Group. And the two daughters will work closely together. But guess what? They are actually only 26 and 24 years old. And so the whole transition is going to be another 10 years. The emeritus chairman will say, I'm going to be, you know, stepping back. And they will actively run because I want to name them as chairman and CEO ASAP. But that transition process will take the next 10 years because these two wonderful next-gen leaders will have to get buy-in from all the staff, all the customers, all the employees, and the whole community in Myanmar. So therefore, the whole transition, development, selection, initiation process, working backwards, take 25 years. If you don't start learning about this right now, uh, you won't have enough time. There will not be enough you know, traction and pathway for you to groom your next-gen leader. According to a survey published by BFI, more than 80% of business families believe that their next generation will be able to take over the business. The strong confidence aside, do they face any challenges? Actually, the results did not surprise us. We are, in fact, very much uh, intrigued by the fact that the first and second generation are very much for the idea that the member succeeding them should come from the family. And I think the name of the family carries a lot of weight. So many of the customers, suppliers, employees do want to see a family face. Now, that becomes a real challenge either from the angle that none of the family members are interested in joining the family business. And I think in today's climate, many of our next-gen are actually uh, faced with many options. They could join companies, they could start their own business, and so they may not feel that they need to come back and take over the business per se. So we have found that in spite of this challenge, we can train, develop our family members to be responsible stewards of the family business. So they should know how to be owners, how to be stakeholders, even if they are not running the business directly. Now, of course, the other big challenge is if you do have more than one family member who are able to take over as the successor, then the question, like I said earlier, becomes who gets to have the voice, who gets to select. And recently, we came across a family in Indonesia, and he said to me that we really need to set up a family constitution. And I think that is critical because the family dynamics is another dimension that can you know, bring complexity to the whole relationship. So if there's family governance, it would help clear the way because then it becomes very clear. For example, no in-laws should take over the business. If that becomes the rule, then you become very defined, very focused, and you're only looking for direct blood relatives that could take over the business. So governance is key. Having family dynamics looked after is key. Then when we take care of the family side, it becomes easier to look at the training and development 
both for family and non-family members. So we want to overcome the challenge because the desire, the aspiration of many of the founders of the family business is to have a family member still involved. And in fact, our chairman of SMU actually said once that if there's no family member directly involved in the business, we will never use the term family business to define or qualify that this is a family-owned business. Among the Institute's training programs, which types are the most highly in demand by business families? Given that uh, most of our families are at the Gen 2 to Gen 3 critical stage, I think the governance and the dynamics piece will be very much demanded by both family and non-family members. So family members have to understand and communicate, and the dynamics and governance piece allow them to safely share and communicate in the BFI environment. But at the same time, no families can exist without non-family help. So we are actually also training advisors to help them understand what it takes for them to be good advisors and to have sustainable relationship with the family. So it goes beyond uh, you know, independent directors training. A lot of people thought that, oh, that's done by the Institute of Directors, and so why do we need BFI to do it? The lovely part of having uh, the extra training for the advisors is they need to understand the culture dynamics and also the personalities involved in a family-owned business. So we have been able to do uh, programs in that direction and the good part of it is sometimes the families are actually comfortable with non-family members coming for such advisors program together with them. You spoke about the challenges that Asian business families face. Are these challenges similar to those experienced by business families in Western countries? I think the good part about many of the studies that we've been tracking and following is many of our European families and American families and even Middle Eastern families have gone past some of these hurdles. And so they are now in their fourth, fifth and sixth gen. Uh, recently in an Italian event, I just sat next to an American sixth gen family member. He says his outer circle has a thousand family members, his inner circle 400 family members and the core circle is 40 family members. So how to engage a thousand family members at the outer circle? He says he's more than happy to share with us. So I think in many ways, uh, from a cultural point of view, we could have nuances and differences, and we are writing cases in that direction. But across the globe, we have really have wonderful family examples who have gone beyond the third generation and building into the sixth and the eighth and the tenth. And I think that's the ambition of BFI. We really want to help our families last beyond the third generation with training, with research materials, with engagement sessions and with great role models and examples for all to learn from. We know that family dynamics can be a complex matter. How can families embrace harmony and stay unified for the common good of the business? What are the best practices that successful family businesses adopt? Actually, this is a great question because it actually flows from the second survey that we did, funded by Deloitte. And uh, in the second survey, we actually surveyed 102 business families and they straddle countries outside of Southeast Asia. And I think the biggest factor uh, about families is that they actually are family first. And the business comes because the family stay in business together. So the family dynamics becomes the core 
and it has its plus and minus. The plus side of family dynamics is the value system. And I think without having to, you know, do a national agenda of creating values, the family grew up with a value system. And it's a natural extension of the name, the culture, and the family face. So familiness is a very strong glue. The only problem is familiness, as like all glue, can become less sticky as you go from one generation to the next. So if the oldest family member passed on, then who is to tell the stories of the families and how to continue to tell the next generation of family members all the great things that your family has done, built, and the resilience and the pain in building up the family business. So it's a little bit like Singapore's history. It's great to have the first 50 and all the pioneer generation are around to tell you the story. But the next 50, when the pioneer generation is no longer here, Who's going to keep telling the story? And won't the story get you know, diluted and changed? And so the communication piece of family dynamics is critical. But like all Asian families, sometimes we have things that we don't want to bring up to the front. So we need an independent group of people who are neutral, who are aligned to the family values, who want to see the family succeed to help them build the communication links. And I think the young generation of today do want to be heard. So how do we close the gap, the intergenerational gap, where it's no longer the young don't speak up, you just listen and take orders. That's a whole new world today. So we actually are glad that in BFI, we are actually setting up courses like how to resolve conflicts. How do we get family members to sit down and listen and communicate and not just text each other on WhatsApp? How do we use technology at the same time bearing in mind that traditional values still matter. So we are actually uh, driving through the research in our second piece of work to get families coming together and closed-door sessions where actually family members could share the mistakes, the things that could have gone wrong, and how to engage families so that we build on what other people have learned. And I think essentially, you know, with this research, we are hoping to write case studies that we could use in many of these closed-door classes and uh, bring family voices to other families. So while faculty and professors could write up the cases, the voices of the families should be there as well. So we are actually looking forward to this learning journey, both with families who are willing to share and with families who are willing to learn. And I think going forward, it will be a great, exciting two years for BFI, looking at such applied research and engaging the community. This piece of research also studied the formal and informal platforms for decision-making. Can you elaborate? We have found that, interestingly, uh, while culture is a very strong element that builds and binds families together, many people have a mistaken notion that if they have a corporate advisory board, that will be a great substitute for having families to talk to each other. So actually, that is wrong because a corporate board is only looking after the governance of the business, but not the governance of the family. So the family constitution, the family council, the family meetings, 
are very new concepts and many of our business families thought that just having the Asian culture alone isn't that enough already. Why must we have such formal, structured processes in place? Like I said earlier, I think many of our families do not know how to address the family issues. So they quickly said, oh, we have a corporate governance, we have a business advisory board, shouldn't that be enough? I think that's fine if you are only looking at the business. But remember, as you go into the third generation, there will be many of your family members who are not working directly in the business. But they are owners. They are shareholders. So they will be asking questions. They'll be saying, how come only your children who are in the business know what is happening in the business? What about me and my kids? We are owners, but we only meet once a year. And you only let us know how much dividends are being distributed. We have no idea what's happening in the business per se. So in order to get total buy-in, we have found that many of our families actually have a family board and they have a family advisory group and they have family meetings. And prior to a corporate governance meeting of the business itself, they actually meet as a family first. And then the representatives of the family who sits on the business board can articulate to the business and other shareholders, this is our family's view. So we are hoping to work in that direction. We are hoping to help families set up their family board, understand what it takes to build the family constitution, and also conduct family meetings. And interestingly, this has never been in the curriculum of any university, nor taught in any school, because most of our universities are actually setting people up to be managers and you know, leaders of companies, but never be a leader of a family. And in Asia, since 80 to 85% of many of our firms are actually family-owned, this adds tremendous value, not just for Singapore's family-owned companies, but for Southeast Asia and Greater China's group of companies. So we are actually working in partnership with eight other universities, which are part of the Successful Transgenerational Entrepreneurial Practices University Alliance, so that we could work with them, gather data, do research cross-border, and help other families in Asia and Southeast Asia. And so the potential for SMU and BFI to be a torch to start this conversation is tremendous. So I think BFI has a great future ahead. Looking ahead, what's your take on business families in Asia? Any advice for their leaders? I think I want to repeat what the Indonesian family actually said to me. He says, don't wait for a lawsuit. Don't wait for the family to start going to the court and sue each other because the damage would have been done and no amount of repair would make a difference then. So set up the family constitution early when it is not needed because then it becomes risk management. It prevents the risk of families fighting and airing their dirty laundry taking place. And we have another family who, you know, actually is quoted in our second survey. He says, I do not want to see the Wong family name of Kowloon Watch appear in the newspapers for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> so you can bring the name glory by winning corporate social responsibility awards or be the 
Best Family Film Award, which is what EY gives every year. But please don't get the name of the family tarred for all the wrong reasons. And so the trust of the family name is critical. So we are really excited that we'll be writing a set of cases for next year, funded by the Deloitte gift. And then the following year, we hope to work with our different partners across the borders to come up with some of the best practices adopted by families across our Southeast Asian region. And if we, if we are lucky, we might even stretch and get family best practices, uh, you know, cult from Asia, Northern Asia like China, South Asia like India, Sri Lanka. And who knows, um, the future, like I said, is bright for BFI. Thank you, Professor. My pleasure. Thank you.